I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 18, Discipleship from Theory to Practice. 2006, Dr. Bill Hull wrote a book published by NAV Press. He's a graduate of Talbot Theological Seminary, and then he has gone on as a book writer in the area of discipleship. This book is entitled The Complete Book of Discipleship, subtitle on being and making followers of Christ. And on page 68, he writes this on a definition. A disciple is a student or follower of Jesus. A disciple has decided to submit to at least one other person under appropriate conditions in order to become like that person as that person follows Christ. The disciple's intention is to go deeper with God and to be shaped into the image of Christ. And then he says, let's summarize then exactly what a disciple should be. And he lists five principles. One, a disciple submits to a teacher who teaches him or her how to follow Jesus. Two, a disciple learns Jesus' words. Three, a disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. Four, a disciple imitates Jesus' life and character. And five, a disciple finds and teaches other disciples who also follow Jesus. He then says, if this describes what it meant to be a disciple in the first century, shouldn't we practice it the same way now? And then he goes on to say, the characteristics found in that list, one through five, are absolutely necessary for the process of discipleship to work. By work, he writes, I mean that discipleship results in character transformation and multiplication. The kingdom of God grows through the principle of discipleship. Churches should be outposts for the body of Christ, sending centers for the real work we do in the various parts of life. In other words, how we in our lives affect other lives, where we work, where we live, and where we play. So it's character transformation, it's impacting lives, it's impacting the lives we come in contact with. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he contacts, rubs against other lives, makes a difference in their lives. They in turn are going to move on and contact other lives and the process keeps going on and on and on. In theory, 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things that you have heard among me, Timothy, among many witnesses, Paul would write, the same you commit to others who shall in turn be committing it on to others as well. Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, take note, I will be with you always. Jesus' great commission found in Matthew 28 and 19. All theory that we are to be making practical in practice. We, each of us here, ought to be discipling others. How do we do that? Well, I want you to see what Paul would do in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla, how he would get together with a couple. We have looked at the early church in Acts and at Barnabas very early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, then we move to Acts 9, then we move to Acts chapter 11. And we saw how this man, Barnabas, whose name was Joseph. But the apostles, 
because of the character of this man and the sacrifice of this man for the body and his investment in the lives of others gave him a new name. They called him, not Joseph anymore, but Barnabas, son of Navi, encouragement, comfort, consolation. And his reputation of that kind of character was such that he then became the one sent to a new church that had started in the major city of Antioch. He would go there and he in turn would do what he would live up to his name. He would go and find the man named Saul, who now we know as the Apostle Paul, and bring him there. And the two of them, mentoring, co-mentoring each other, as well as then mentoring the body of believers there, discipling them, and the practice would grow so much that the Holy Spirit would say in Acts 13, separate me, Saul and Barnabas, for the ministry whereunto I have called them. And when they had prayed and fasted the church, they laid their hands upon Paul and Barnabas and sent them forth. And so began the first missionary journey to replicate what Paul and Barnabas had done at Antioch, now worldwide. And we sit here in Cary, North Carolina, United States, North America, centuries later, a result of what started because of a few people initially carrying out what Christ had said to do. It's our turn to do it now so that the centuries ahead, people will be doing the same as a result of what took place in Cary, Colonial Baptist Church, Wake County, North Carolina, United States, turning the world over for Jesus Christ. Are you up to the task? And we do it by Acts chapter 18. After these things he left Athens, Paul did, and went to Corinth and found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, working together. For by trade they were tent makers, leather workers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul is going to work with a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And I want you to notice, first of all, as he disciples them, he associated closely with them. Verse 2 says, he found a Jew named Aquila. Latter part of verse 2, he came to them. He initiated this friendship. He made the initial contact. He found them. He came to them, this single person working with this couple. And by the way, a note there, too often we associate and only feel like we should associate with people who are exactly like us to the point where sometimes we stiff arm or even reject others not exactly like us. So only young couples with young couples or no, not Barnabas, not Paul. And Paul had learned that and watched that, seen that in Barnabas' life as well. Who are Aquila and Priscilla? After Julius Caesar, the next emperor would be Claudius. The Jews were generally treated, well, kind of indifferently during his most part of his reign. As we get into the late 40s, about 48 or so, there was an agitation that had taken place in Rome in relations with the Jews to the point that the emperor Claudius mandated 
and demanded that all Jews leave Rome. And he expelled them from Rome. It's recorded here in verse 2 that the result of that, it is at this time then that Aquila and Priscilla leave Rome, make their way to Corinth in Greece, a major commercial city in the empire at that time. And because it's a major city, a major commerce city, a major sinful city, that's why Paul is there to turn that city over as it were on its ear for Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that'll happen. Paul will find others, believers there, this couple, who are tent makers. Paul, a fellow tent maker, becomes friends with them. And this couple, Christians already, coming from Rome, joined together with Paul. Aquila and Priscilla are a remarkable husband and wife team. In the New Testament, you see them recorded six different times we read of them. And always they occur as a couple. Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla. Then it reverts and it goes Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila. In Scripture, they're always mentioned together. They are leather workers. The term translated tent makers literally is leather workers. And Paul is too. Jewish rabbis, Jewish young men were trained in an occupation, even though they're going to be religious teachers, they're trained in a secular occupation so as to support themselves. And Paul is trained as a leather worker. And the Roman Empire, having soldiers stationed throughout the empire, they dwell not in canvas, but they dwell in leatherish tents. And Paul then and others would find a lucrative business trade by both making, repairing these tents. And so with that in mind, Paul and this couple will find themselves working together in proximity, and eventually they will join him on his missionary journeys. We'll see that a little later. What's remarkable about this couple is if you read Romans 16 and you look at verses 3 through 5, or you look in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, you're going to find, and let me just read from Romans 16 for a moment, verses 3 through 5. Paul would write in the conclusion of his letter to the Romans, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Now, something very important to notice in Romans, you'd see it in Corinthians as well. They were, wherever they went, opening their home to the body of believers. They would open their home at Rome. They opened their home at Corinth. They opened their home at Ephesus. They are also learners as they sit under the teaching of Paul. And together then they become teachers, taking what they had learned and passing it on to others, even when it requires courage because of the danger. They would risk their own necks, Paul wrote, for him. Paul is deeply grateful for their friendship and partnership. And as you say in verse 2, he found, he came to them. But notice verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working together. He initiated a friendship. Paul sought them out. Paul looked. And then Paul 
became close. They provided him a place to stay and work. They spent time together because they had a common bridge. That common bridge allowed them to dialogue about much of life, of much of work and their occupations, much of what it would be like to be a Christian in the contemporary world, living in Rome, living in the persecution as such, or living under the expulsion. And now what that meant to be a Christian when the enemy is forever at your doorstep, or actually more on your back. And they could talk about those things and talk about what it's like then in the trade that they're working as well and how to incorporate and how to bring in Christianity into every aspect of life. And they could then just talk about the things of God as well. Why would Paul seek out this couple and work with them in the faith? Because he believed in what Jesus had mandated, commanded and mandated in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He believed in what you and I now know as discipleship, knowing that that is how the faith is communicated and learned and woven into the fabric of our life. We call that character transformation, spiritual formation, becoming then, as it were, countercultural, Christian world-viewed, teaching them to observe all things, about this life, into this life. Teaching them how to answer now those questions, those three questions we talked about of whence, whither, and why. Where did we come from whence? Where are we going whither? And what is our purpose? Why are we here? Why is this one-to-one -one discipleship? or one with a small group, or one with a couple, or a couple with a couple, or small group interaction, or mentorship, or peer mentorship, two of us growing together, or couples growing together, so important. Well, because that's the pattern. That's the pattern that Jesus practiced with his disciples. He lived with them. He became close to them. Oh, they heard him preach. They heard those sermons. And then when they would get alone, and when he had taught the sermons, then they would ask him questions. Who can do this? This is a hard saying. How can we do this? How often should we forgive? But I can't. You see, a sermon expounds the Word of God. But in a relationship, you apply it. Oh, yes, you can. Here's how. And then people can learn. You see, you get to know other people. You get to know other couples. And you get to observe areas where you need to deal or address some problems, some areas of life. Oh, there's strengths. But then, you know, I've noticed some things, and if you don't mind, can... or. I've seen how you do it. Can you show me how? You see, Jesus did that. John 13 is a perfect example of how finally the Lord had been working with his disciples. Oh, sometimes they acted like sons of thunder, James and John. So he worked with them on their temper and how you need to curb it and control it. And he worked with the whole group of the 12 when 
They were always bickering among themselves who is greatest, most prominent, likely to have when we rule and reign with him the highest positions. And finally, that last night, the last teaching example he has an opportunity to do, he takes the basin, he takes the towel, and he actually washes their feet. I've talked with you about servanthood. I've told you about servanthood. Now I'm going to act like a servant and show you how far you stew in servanthood. And he gets down and he washes their feet. That one they're never going to forget. And he shows them then what it's like. They watched him. They saw power that they had never seen, never even heard of. Power that great. Right before their eyes. And they saw that that power was part of his very fabric. And they saw that he, when he wasn't with them, was spending great amounts of time alone talking to God. The Trinity communing. And in that, Luke chapter 11, the apostles finally approach him. And they say, Lord, Master, teach us to pray. And he would teach them, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You pray like that. Oh, my. In the Old Testament when people prayed, in the way the Pharisees and others had taught their students to pray, God, God, I thank you that I. No, Jesus said, no. The great I am we address as Abba, Father in a relationship. Short-circuited their thinking, changed their lives. It's affected every prayer you and I have prayed since. He's our Father. And we can come to Him in that intimate relationship. And they witness, we'd like to be able to do that. How is it done? Why couldn't we heal? Why couldn't we? And He told them, i got to talk to you about your faith. If you'd have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved. And he could point out things in their life, Simon, Simon, Simon. You ought to be more a Petros, a Peter. And he would talk to them. You observe areas. And it tears down pedestal complexes. We often look at great Christians and we think, I could never be like that. How do you do that? If only I could be like that. I shared with you about the couple that worked with Lucy and with me when, when we were first saved as a young couple. This Judy and Jim took us aside and over pizza in their homes taught us things. And when we had our first child, they taught us things on how to raid to that child and pray to, with that child and how to help those children grow, and when is it proper, how to use discipline properly, and to use it biblically, not cruelly, how to do it well, in love. My, it changed our thinking. How to take your child and read to them from this children's Bible and get them to that they... they, they, they can sit in church in junior churches and at two and three years old they're singing to Jesus. 
One of the first words Philip learned was Moses, see, Jesus. And, and they taught us things about how to parent. And then they would take us on and encourage us. And as we then felt called to ministry, going to seminary and then getting around these professors and sitting under them. And when I was in Minneapolis, thinking, I'll never know this. I sat under Dr. Warren Van Hetlow, my theology prof, now with the Lord, dean of the seminary, chairman of theology, and my theology prof and my Hebrew professor. And as I sat under him, I go, I just want to learn. If I can just learn what he's forgotten, I'll have a great ministry one day. Just that's all I want. And then I would sit and learn under him and he eventually moved out to Pennsylvania to help start a seminary. We moved out to complete seminary underneath his and some other professors. I remember on one occasion, it was Thanksgiving in that second year we were in seminary, and, and Dr. Van Hitlow's wife had to travel back to Michigan with some matters with their family, and he had to stay back to teach. And so over Thanksgiving, those three days, four days on that weekend, he was alone. And I said to Lucy, you know what we ought to do? I feel bad for Dr. Van why don't we invite him over to our house on Thanksgiving? To which my wife was going, you're kidding, right? Well, Dr. Van Hetlow is this very stoic Dutchman with an economy of words. He used to call it cheap Dutchman. But he was about, well, he was as stingy with words in some senses as he was. Well, I won't go into that, all right? But Dr. Van was just a sweet. We, and, 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 and Lucy said, well, okay, let's do it. And so we invited him over. And the dean agreed to come to our little apartment. The whole apartment was about as big as this bubble, all right? It was the, that big. And I decided, well, let's invite three other couples as well with kids. So we all came. And... What we did is we sat in the living room and we sat up against windows and piano benches and the table filled the room. And so everybody had to get seated and then Lucy could bring the food. Do you understand what I mean by that? You could not move. And so we, we brought the food and just passed it down the table and there's Dr. Van at the head of the table, the dean of the seminary, on these card tables or game tables that are covered with a cloth and we're all passing. And it is so noisy. We have all these babies at that age, everybody had babies, you know, and we have all these babies everywhere, and it's just like, ah. Finally, I said, you know what? We ought to go bowling. And he asked me, Dr. Van Hetlow said, I'd love to. And I'm going, Van Bolts? And so uh, we, uh, we went out bowling with all the little kids and everything. And a year before that, my wife had bought me a bowling ball, and I, I, I can't bowl at all. But if you have the ball, you have the gloves, you have the shoes, and you go out, it just looks like you're having a bad day, okay? <laughs> you wouldn't have all that equipment unless you're obviously good. He's just having a bad day. Folks, it's all about the equipment, okay? <laughs> and so I'm up there bowling, and it's boom, you know, you've thrown those. You know, and you throw a couple more, and it hits those three pins on the right or the three on the left. Dr. Vance, Dave, come here. Yes, sir? Take that ball, hold it right here like this. Put those two fingers in. Put that thumb at 11 o'clock. Rotate it at 11 o'clock. Bring the ball straight back. Walk up to the alley, and there you'll notice. See those five dots across right there? You put your foot between two and three. And when you release the ball, you bring it over the second dot right on the inside between two and three. And as you let it go at 11 o'clock, it makes a natural curve. And I threw it, and ten pins fell down. <laughs> 
And I did it again. Not as many, but I eventually, and I'm going, wow. Theology, Hebrew, bowling. <laughs> but in time I would ask Van questions about the pastorate. Came time to join or pastor a church, the candidating process. I asked Van questions. I asked him questions about things from the Word of God, and he would just take me aside and disciple me. After I was a pastor for planning a church in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and near Hershey, um, on Mondays, Lucy and I would invite Van and his wife to come up. And they would travel all the way up, a hundred miles, and they would golf with us on Monday afternoons. I thought it was because he enjoyed golfing. I learned later he was mentoring us. We'd be on the course, and I'd be addressing the ball. Hey, 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 your hips are sliding. Just rotate. And he would correct me on my golf swing. He was always teaching. Only when I asked. But at the same time, we were out on the golf course and I could talk to him about, I'm working through Ezekiel or I'm preaching something on the new covenant. And as I'm looking at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, does the new covenant blessing, does it fit with Hebrews 8 in our day or not? And we would discuss things like that. And he would teach me and he, we would mentor. Eventually he would come to the point where he would say, David, what you need to do is give serious thought to get going on to your Master of Theology after your Master of Divinity degree. And I said, I had been praying about that. I'm thinking of majoring in theology. He said, well, no, you're not. You're going to major in Hebrew and Greek. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> and, and, and I said, why? Because, because any theologian first must be established in the languages. Your theology comes out of your biblical languages in understanding Scripture. Once you have biblical theology down, then you can worry about systematics. And so I'd gotten a THM, my Master of Theology after a Master of Divinity, and I was thinking, this is as far as I want to go. And he went, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ was a carpenter used to using the sharpest tools. You do not tell the Lord you're sharp enough. You need to pray about your doctorate. And when I came to going on, I went to talk with him, and he guided and mentored. It was a great, great experience having somebody who would invest in your life. But you know what also I learned? I learned it with him, and I got close to one of my profs when I was at Dallas, a fellow by the name of Craig Blazing. We would spend lunch hours together. And you know what? Without embarrassment, without others, you can ask questions. And three, four of us would get together over those lunches, and we would just talk. And you know what you get to find? They're very human like you and me. Same struggles, same difficulties. They're raising children as well. But what you learn is, my goodness, how they have insights into this passage that, or simply, here's how you trust the Lord when you have nowhere else to turn. And you get to learn by talking with people. And I tell my pastoral interns, and every summer would have a group of interns and we would bring between six and ten of those men aboard. Spurgeon used to call them preacher boys. And they would spend then ten weeks, twelve weeks every summer virtually hanging on the coattails of the pastor wherever we went for ten weeks, just learning how to do, how to live ministry. Come, observe, learn, ask, go, and do better yourself. And you stand on the shoulders of those who came before you, and you actually get to see further. Do you know that? That's discipleship. That's what's going on here.
You see, you impress lives from a distance, but you impact lives up close. After the first hour, a lady came up and said, where did that line come from that you impact up close? You impress lives from a distance, but you impact up close. I said, I don't know. She said, I heard that 18 years ago. I said, I've heard it, and I've just always used it. I never thought about who originated it. Maybe it just goes back centuries. She said, that line, though, 18 years ago, has made all the difference in my Christian life because she had been an accomplished pianist. She says, I play in churches, and I've played on stage, and you impress people. And as a musician, I would play, and people would go, wow. And I found satisfaction in the wow. And then something happened, and I lost the use of my hands, and I can't play anymore. And she said, and my heart was broken until I learned to... I probably need to teach. And so I've poured my life one by one in teaching. And while I'm teaching, I get to talk with them about the things of God. And she says, I've learned you impact lives more by doing that than up on a stage. That's what it's all about, isn't it? The real work of the ministry is not happening up here. Although faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word, preach the word. But the work of the ministry and it's not even going on right there in those padded seats. It's going on as we walk out into those halls, as we get in the car and we drive away and we talk to those teens, we talk to those children, or we talk to that other couple we brought with us in the back seat. Or when we meet them in the restaurant or we meet them at home and we talk with them tonight or this afternoon and we start applying and talking and doing the real work of the ministry. Amen? Paul with Aquila and Priscilla, he would preach in the synagogues and then throughout the week they would talk about the things that he had been preaching. And so as a result that takes us to the second point. Paul with Aquila and Priscilla, he associated with them and then he trained them in spiritual matters. For verse 4 says he was reasoning. That means he takes the scriptures and as he then causes people to think through the doctrines. And they learn doctrine listening to Paul until Aquila and Priscilla themselves became well-established, well-grounded, formally, informally. And that went on for 18 months. That's the length of the time that Jesus spent with the 12 apostles out of those three years that he was with them. Three years with all the disciples, 18 with the 12. Paul is with Aquila and Priscilla for 12. After they had, he had been alone with the Lord learning in the Arabian desert. Imagine the great teaching and training that they had gotten. And then he multiplies himself through them. Now let's go to verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. They will leave Corinth and travel with him now. In Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They now, it's not him, they. Notice the change, verse 18 to verse 19. They together come to Ephesus. He now leaves them there. And then now there's a commentary. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he didn't consent, but taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, that's all a commentary on the fact that Paul left Aquila and Priscilla there to establish the church in Ephesus, which they would do in their house, and then it would grow on. He will return months later and continue the work that they have helped start and launch. He multiplies himself through them. They're now capable of assisting and discipling others. They can impact lives. They could continue on the ministry of grounding others in the faith because they had become knowledgeable, had become leaders. They had all wanted Paul to stay. Paul knows something, that a church isn't built on a single man. Sometimes we find it difficult to let go of the one who discipled us. The apostles did with Jesus in John 14, the night before he announces to them, I am going to go. Let not your heart be troubled. And here they want Paul. They plead with him to stay, but no. It's the Spirit of God working among, and Aquila and Priscilla can continue the work. And I want you to notice Paul with an Aquila and Priscilla at Corinth, but now notice Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus with Apollos, if you would notice verses 23 through 26. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla were. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Aquila and Priscilla, this hospitable couple that are always opening their home. And that's how they started. They opened their home. By the way, that's all you need to do to start. It's just start there. But we can't have all kinds of people in. We're just new in the Lord ourselves. We'll open your home, invite some in who know much more in their Christian life because they're more mature in the faith and work with them, and then watch how God will enable you to go on even further in time. But what a couple, Quill and Priscilla, constantly on the move from place to place, always available for God, but their eyes and ears, not to mention their hearts, are open to those in need. They're ready. They are willing as a couple. They are able, at least with what little they had, to serve the Lord anywhere, to serve the Lord in any way, to serve the Lord at any time and at any cost. Now notice, having lived and worked with the great apostle Paul for months, they are well versed in the scriptures. I want you to see then the individual whom they will disciple. Why did they go to Apollos? I want you to notice first of all because of his potential. They will go to Apollos because of his potential. It says here in verse 24 that this young Jewish man, probably the age of a senior or so in college, junior or senior in college, early 20s, the age of a seminarian as he's beginning seminary. He is, an, number one, an educated man. He's an Alexandrian. An Alexandrian by birth. But that phrase is brought out not just to tell us where he came from, but being from Alexandria 
one of the leading cities, if not the second leading city of the entire empire, but also in the Roman Empire. This is the university city with the largest library of the day, Alexandria, Egypt. He is well-educated. He is well-cultured. He is worldwide. The Jews had flourished there. And their population at the time is over one-third of the population of Alexandria. Trained because this is where the school of Philo and others, he's probably been well-trained, well-studied. And Philo and Jewish rabbinic teaching at that time was using an allegorical method. So in and of itself, there were probably some faults in it. But he was a Hellenist. A Jew in Alexandria means he's Greek culture influenced. Knows Greek philosophy as well as Old Testament knowledge. His mind had been cultivated then by the finest Hebrew and Greek culture and thought. He's an educated man. He's an eloquent man because we read that in his speech he's a great communicator. It says in verse 24, an eloquent man. Logias. A great communicator, expressive, possessing both oral and written skills, learned and eloquent in the expression of all that knowledge he has. He had the special capacity to be able to lucidly explain his thoughts in a way that captured both the intellect and emotions of the listeners. Eloquent. It says also he is mighty in the scriptures. Interesting term when it talks about this man mighty in the scriptures, possessing both a wealth of Old Testament knowledge. Man who had loved the Old Testament, the Word of God, is mighty. Dunamai. We get our word dynamite from it. It's the word translated power or mighty, dynamic in his preaching of the Old Testament. Not only well versed, not only knowledgeable. But the way that then he can express himself brings together all that intellectual atmosphere of Alexandria. He's also a man, as we read here, instructed in the way of the Lord. He's accomplished in religion. He is a believer. The foundation is solidly laid. This young scholar learned in the Old Testament under John's type of training, John the Baptist and the truths he had taught, is prepared well to understand the prophecies of the Messiah. And he had heard that Jesus of Nazareth had been the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Hear ye him. And so he knows things about the Old Testament messianic truths. And that's what he is talking about as he is in the synagogue speaking. He's fervent in spirit. Zeon toi numinati. What does that mean? Zeon. Z-E-O-N. As we talk about that fervent Greek word zeon is the word used to boil water. It means to be boiling up. Enthusiastic. Boiling with enthusiasm and excitement. Zealous. Determined. Enthusiastic. Fervent. But he's a bold man, it says, Speaking boldly. Luke tops off the qualities of Apollos by telling us that he spoke boldly. Par-e-si-ah, two Greek words put together. 
meaning confidence or boldness, or it means literally to tell all. As it's used here, it means that Apollos told all that he knew, and he told it with daring and fearlessness. When a man has all the abilities Apollos possessed, why does he need to be discipled? Why? Why not just send him off into ministry? Why school him? Why disciple him? Why would this couple come alongside of him? Verse 25 and then 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, listened, listened intently, and it means to hear, not just what they, they listened to him. No, no. They listened. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The problem wasn't Apollos and his character. It was his message. His message wasn't inaccurate, what he had to say. It was inadequate. What he said was not in error or inaccurate. It was incomplete. It was juvenile. He wasn't teaching others right because he had some errors. He just didn't know differently. He didn't know it all. He lacked knowledge of the whole council. Aquila and Priscilla did not hear about the things that they had heard when they sat under Paul, who at this point was forming, as we said last week, all those deep doctrines that you and I know of justification of the faith, sanctification, glorification, all those things that are now in Romans, and the things in Ephesians about once being outside the commonwealth but now being in the family of God, being baptized into the body of Christ, all those truths. Those were all new revelations from God. And Apollos had stopped with the repent of your sins under John the Baptist. He did not know the truths of the finished work of the crucifixion and the cross, the resurrection and what that all entailed, the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. He was just teaching because what he had was sufficient. But folks, let's not... Settle for sufficient. Let's strive for excellency. Amen? Well, I've, I, I'm saved and, and, and I'm, uh, you know, saved a few years and I've read through the Gospel of John a few times and I've memorized the Romans Road, Romans 3.23, 3.10 and 23 and 5.8 and 6.23 and then 10, 9 through 13. And so I have that town, and um, uh, uh, I've read through Acts and, Mo- and Ephesians and Galatians on legalism. I, I know that, and, and I've worked through some of the stuff, though, in Thessalonians uh, and putting the rapture in place. I haven't gotten that all down yet between pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib and pre-wrath rapture and still working. I, I don't quite understand the day of the Lord stuff. And most of the Old Testament, well, I've read Psalms and Proverbs. I read a proverb a day. And Genesis, of course, on creation. Ezekiel, whoa, those wheels and all that stuff of chapter 1. Mm, tough stuff. And, and some and minor prophets can't quite put all that together. And we're settling for sufficient, folks. There's more. There's a lot more. The whole council. But... No, no, just 
We've got things to help. We've got people to help. I want to learn. We've got men's studies, ladies' studies, where you can get together in small studies and you can ask questions. And you won't be embarrassed. And you raise a hand, I, 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 hey, I've got to ask somebody and I'll do it. Um, this may seem like a, a, a strange question. There are no strange questions. You want to hear strange questions? You should have heard the ones I used to ask. Okay? There are no dumb questions. No strange questions. No. That's what discipleship is. It's getting together. Growing on. Notice the manner then in which they discipled and we closed. It says, they took him aside and explained. When they heard in verse 26 and 7, they come to him and they approach him. And the manner they do it is with discernment. They sense the areas of need. And they're willing then to confront this man on his doctrine from the word. And they do it with encouragement. No embarrassment. Not behind his back. But with tact and with warmth and with love. He was able then to receive what these two tent makers had to say. By the way, that's a sure sign of maturity, isn't it? That he wants to grow. And he's willing to listen. And they approach him in such a way that he could receive what they had to say. You know, when you preached today, you were wrong. They didn't say that at all. Can we talk about what you said was, and discipling is really then a manner of, matter of, as we talk with other people, they feel confident and comfortable because we built a relationship. And they do it because they know you really genuinely care and love them. That's it. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. And you do it in love. No criticism, no gossip. They didn't email. They didn't put it up on a blast. They didn't put it in quarter-inch high letters. Do you see what Apollos taught today? They approach him and deal with it that way. And when it's done, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and then wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. As he moves on now from Turkey on through that region and heads on over to Greece. And he will go on to places like Corinth and Ephesus later again. He becomes the master teacher. The pupil is now the teacher. Paul will come later to Corinth and hear of the great work that Apollos has done. A circle is complete. Barnabas with Paul and Paul with in the church at Antioch and Barnabas and Paul together and then Paul with the Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos and then Apollos moves on. Paul later sees that what he had started way back there just continues right on and that's how it's been going for centuries. Folks, the best relay of truth is discipleship. Group, congregational fellowship, all this is important but the strongest and most lasting impact in life is going to be made through one-on-one or group relations and interaction as you then take and work that out. And it might be that mentorship and discipleship takes place in a home with a husband and wife working together or mom and dad with kids or with grandparents or uncles and aunts or in our church. Don't wait for our church to start a program to do it. We already have programs. Mops, women's studies, men's studies, teens, junior high, And on and on it goes. 
but do it with folks that you associate with and get together and disciple each other. And the best time to do it is when you take the initiative. So let's start. Has someone discipled you, taught you about Jesus Christ and the whole Word of God? There are folks here today, some who need to be discipled. We'd like to begin what we've been talking about today by introducing you to Jesus Christ. Have you begun a personal, eternal relationship with the heavenly king? That's how Jesus began. He would take men and women aside and say, do you know that you need to be born again and enter into a relationship? We'd love to talk with you about knowing our sins are forgiven and entering a new life with Jesus Christ, an eternal life, an eternal life with God forever in heaven. You can have that promise and that guarantee today. And then we'll help you learn more from the Word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, thank you for what you reveal in the Word about how men and women through the ages have done what we're doing right here. Taking the Word of God from here, from across this pulpit, and bringing it right into our lives. Taking the Word of God from what we read daily in our personal time and asking others, how did you put this into your life? And living out the Word of God day by day. Lord, thank you that you lay the pattern and you give us examples and models. Now give us the grace, the courage, the energy, and Lord, opportunities are all around. Just stimulate us, convict us to be about discipling others. As we go out now, Lord, we ask your blessing on our lives, Lord, to use us, to impact wherever you've placed us so that as men see our good works, they may glorify our Father, which is in heaven. So help us to shine brilliantly and to be pungent, appropriately as salt and light in a dark, thirsty world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>